Chapter Five of Thou Art the Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Thou Art the Man by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Five From the Far Off Land. Sibyl's own particular retreat was in a tower at the southern angle of Ellerslie House, and it was one of the prettiest rooms in a house where beauty and harmony of furniture and decoration had been achieved regardless of cost, and with the aid of all the new lights which high art has cast upon our domestic surroundings. The room was octagonal, and the eight panels accommodated frescoes of the four seasons, alternated with four allegorical figures representing dawn, noon, evening, and night, these executed in a decidedly French manner at which sturdy English art might lift the nose and shrug the shoulder of contempt but for which decorative purposes was admirable. Madras curtains of pale amber, chairs and sofa covered with sea-green silk, piano, tables, bookshelves, and mantelpiece, all in white enameled wood, gave delicate brightness to the room, which was lighted by four tall casement windows overlooking sea and moor, and the village of Ardliston straggling along the edge of the cliff, with its snug little harbour sunk deep into the hollow of the hills. Sibyl could see all the outer world for which she cared from these four windows. She had spent an occasional summer at Scarborough, and she had seen the glory of the English lakes, but the world she loved was the world of far-reaching moorland and far-reaching ocean. At half-past two on that summer afternoon, Marie Arnold stood in the golden light while her wondering eyes slowly made the circuit of the room and then concentrated their gaze upon the owner of these luxurious surroundings, who stood smiling at her, a gracious figure, a pale, sweet face, a tall slip of a girl, slenderly formed, and with only the promise of beauty, a figure and face which were both curiously contrastive with the strongly built and well-rounded form, brilliant black eyes, and vivid colouring of the young woman from the sunny south. Sibyl asked her if she could speak English, she replied modestly, very little. But her father was an Englishman all the same, she informed Sibyl, and she hoped to earn, learn English very quickly. Ah, oh, mais non, 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 cried Sibyl. Learn very slowly. Do not learn at all, she went on in her pretty girlish English French. I am going to talk French with you always. I shall get along 
so much faster with you than with Fraulein, because you will never correct me. You will not, will you, Marie? You won't take the faintest notice of my faults in grammar, and you will only stop me when I am so bad that you can't tell what I mean. Is that a bargain? But Mademoiselle speaks like an angel, protested Marie with her pretty southern flattery. No, no, I am wretched as to grammar. Fraulein stops me every minute, first a wrong tense, then a wrong gender, and then the form of the sentence is all wrong, and then I have to say devant when it should have been avant, or sauf when I should have said except. As if it mattered, that is not the way to teach a girl to speak a foreign language. The way is to let her talk and talk and talk as the birds sing, until her instinct teaches her what is right and what is wrong. Come and sit on my sofa, Marie. Isn't it a darling sofa? And tell me all about yourself and the country where you were born. Marie sighed and obeyed, and presently they were sitting on the sofa, the fair head close beside the dark shining hair that had grown in the sun, and which always had sunny gleams even in its darkness the large dark eyes had golden lights in them as if they too had taken beauty from the southern sun tell me tell me all urged sibyl always in french delighted to be able to talk without apprehension of the fraulein's nice criticism unless it grieves you to talk of your home no no mamselle it does not grieve me i have wept all my tears i have wept my fears since my mother died just a fortnight ago only a fortnight and my mother died only a year ago ah i can feel for you and the white slim hand stole into the french girl's coarser hand and tears rained from sibyl's violet eyes the very name mother was a charm to make her weep she was not always kind mamselle but i was sorry all the same when she died she was only ill for a few days and she was unconscious toward the last so that we could never say good-bye she drifted out of life in a long sleep and i was left alone there in our little villa Mourgin, alone with the poor dead mother knowing not knowing what was to become of me any more than the great white cat she had been fond of knew what was going to come become of him had you no uncles and aunts and people inquired sibyl wonderingly she was so richly provided with relatives upon the allendale side of her house to say nothing of numerous humbler higginsons that she could not imagine an existence unsurrounded by kith and kin no mamselle i have no one and i never heard that my mother had any friend in this world except sir higginson 
You mean my father, Sir Joseph? Yes, Sir Joseph Higginson. But how did your mother, so far away, happen to win my father's friendship? inquired Sibyl. Her husband was an engineer who worked under Sir Higginson when he was establishing great ironworks at Fontaine-le-Roi, near the Belgian frontier, explained Marie Arnold. That was many years ago, before I was born. My father was killed one night in the railway six months before I was born, and Sir Higginson was very good to my mother. She was not a peasant, mademoiselle, and yet she was not quite a lady. She had no thought when my father married her, and she never learned to work for her bride. When she was left a widow with an infant, she was quite helpless. She would have starved, perhaps, if your father had not taken pity upon her. Your husband was killed while he was in my service, he told her, and I shall provide for you the rest of your days. And he kept his word nobly. My mother went back to her own country before I was born, and we lived in a little white house at Mougin, looking over the hills and the pine woods and the sea. Where is Mougin? It is a little town on a hill near Caen. Mademoiselle knows come, perhaps. No, but I have heard my aunts and cousins talk of it. Some of them go there every winter. And so you were reared near Caen, on the shores of the Mediterranean. I suppose you think that the sea over there is very ugly in comparison said Sibyl, pointing to the ocean she loved. It is greyer than our sea, mademoiselle, and it always looks like our sea in bad weather. And what do you think of our hills and moors? asked Sibyl, with a somewhat peremptory air. Very ugly, mademoiselle. I miss the rolling olive woods, the cypresses, the valleys where the roses grow, I miss the perfume there, the sunshine, most of all. Don't you call that sunshine? asked Sibyl, pointing to the southward windows. Very fair for a sunny day in February, mademoiselle, not for June. Ah, in June, no doubt, your mouja would be simply intolerable, like a sandy desert in Africa. No, mademoiselle, there is always a cool breeze across the hills, a breath from the unseen snow mountains, and there is always a shade in the pine woods, always freshness from the sea. It is only foreigners who fancy they cannot live in our country in the summer. Did my father ever come to see you at Mougin? Yes, mademoiselle. Years and years ago, before I went to the convent. 
what convent you're not a nun are you marie marie laughed for the first time in sibyl's hearing no mademoiselle but i was educated at a convent at grasse is that far from Mougin? only a few miles you can see one place from the other across the valley i used to look from the convent windows and i could almost distinguish the green shutters and the red roof of my mother's house and the pink blossom of the almond trees in the garden and so you were educated at a convent how odd i am a roman catholic mademoiselle in most roman catholic children are educated in convents well you are to be in the schoolroom my father says i am to make myself useful in some way mademoiselle sir joseph said when i saw him in london did you see him quite lately sibyl asked eagerly yes mademoiselle he sent a person his private secretary i believe to take me to england directly after my mother's funeral ah yes yes old mr orlebar i know him very well he lives here when father is at home a funny old man isn't he he was very kind to me mademoiselle all through the long journey and then he took me to a beautiful house like a palace almost in london where i saw sir joseph and he was very kind and he told me he would always be my friend as long as i conducted myself properly and he wrote a letter to his housekeeper and then i stayed one night in that splendid house and saw the picture gallery and all the beautiful things in the great salon and early next morning mr orlebar took me to the station he put me on the train and told me what i was to do when i came to the end of my railway journey and that is all my history mademoiselle poor marie sighed sibyl ever so compassionately i'm so sorry for you and if your mother was not always kind to you still she must have loved you her only child and you must have loved her sibyl had been wondering at marie's dry eyes since she herself could hardly speak of her dead mother without a rush of tears marie hung her head and paused before she replied i loved some of the nuns better than i loved my mother she faltered mother anastasie for instance ah she was so good to me it almost broke my heart to leave the convent because of parting with her i used to walk over to the grass to the convent sh chapel every saint's day but it was to see mother anastasie that i went so far but i could have heard mass in our church at Mougin. she was always pale and delicate and they said there was something wrong with her heart 
she taught me more and worked harder than any of the nuns she taught music and drawing all the children loved her but i do not think one of them loved her better than i and just a year ago in corpus christi i went to the convent and missed her in her place at the organ and after the service one of the lay sisters came to me with her eyes streaming and took me by the hand and held me to the burial ground where there was a newly made grave heaped of roses she could scarcely speak for sobbing but at last she told me how mother anastasie had been found only two days before sitting at the chapel organ in the afternoon sunshine her hands still upon the keys but her head fallen back against the edge of the high oak chair she had died like that mademoiselle alone no one near her they had heard the sound of the organ cease after she had played one of mozart's finest glorias as they walked in the garden in their recreation hour and they thought that the mother anastasie was staying in the chapel for prayer and meditation meditation they watched the chapel door hoping she would come out in time to take a little walk with them but the bell rang for the class and they left the garden it was an hour later before anyone took the alarm and went to work and would look for her marie's eyes were no longer tearless and her last words were made almost inaudible by her emotion you must have loved her very dearly said sibyl full of sympathy yes mademoiselle she was my spiritual mother the mother of my mind and my soul if i were to live to be ever so old i think i could never commit a sin without her image rising up before me to stop me from wickedness my own mother was fond of me in her way but she was oh so different from mother to anastasie she loved gossiping cards and pleasures of all kinds she did not care for books or flowers or pictures she went to high mass every sunday morning but that was all she sat about on the walls or in the olive woods with her neighbors all of the rest of the week except when she could get anyone to drive her to Caen to see the fine shops and fine people she was not often unkind to you questioned sibyl no she was not often unkind and she never beat me sibyl shuddered at the idea of a mother beating her child she whose only image of motherhood was an image of supreme gentleness but her pleasures were not my pleasures pursued the french girl there was no link between us 
and the two years that I spent at Mougin after I left the convent were the dullest years of my life. I missed my old companions and the music and games and the studies even, though I used once to think them a burden, and my soul sickened at the gossip and the cards and the quarrels and quarrels about nothing, a cracked oil jar, a handful of vegetables, loud talking from one door to other, quarrels that seemed to begin and go on for the sake of quarrelling. Poor Marie! There are no quarrels here. Fraulein is rather worrying, and but Miss Minchin is as good as gold, in spite of her fidgety little ways. I call her mousy, because she is brownish-gray and quick, and quiet like a mouse. But she doesn't mind, and you must not call her mousy, not just at first. No, no, mademoiselle, that is understood, replied Marie discreetly. This was the beginning of a lasting friendship, which grew with the passage of time. Marie was accepted in the schoolroom as a useful companion alike by governesses and pupil. She had been taught to use her needle with exquisite art, and the Fraulein was not above getting her handkerchiefs marked by those skilful fingers, in return for which service she helped Marie to acquire a little German without taking the trouble to give her formal lessons. Marie was quick and learnt any new thing with wondrous ease. She had a fine ear for music, and she delighted in Sybil's piano. As a companion in Sybil's walks, she was incomparable, for she knew not weariness, and her light, springy step carried her over the moorland as easily as if she had been some wild creature reared upon those breezy downs. She was Sybil's friend and playfellow for five years, with Sir Joseph Higginson's approval, and it was only now, when Sybil had attained her eighteenth birthday, and all of the Mountford aunts were beginning to pester Sir Joseph about her appearance in society, that he began to wonder how he was to dispose of the humble companion when the heiress came to take her proper position in the great world. "'It is all very well to keep Sybil back for a year or so,' said the only unmarried aunt, Lady Selina Mountfort, who took upon herself to advise all her married sisters, their husbands and belongings, and used to lie awake at night in her pretty little house in Mayfair, worrying herself about the family troubles. "'It is all very well for you to keep her buried alive at Ellerslie for another year. As your heiress, she will have a choice of eligible parties whenever she might appear, but she ought to come out before she is twenty. She looks rather thin and delicate at present. I think another year may improve her, said Lady Selina, as if she were talking of a turkey that is being fattened for Christmas, or a young horse that was furnishing. Sir Joseph promised to bring out his daughter before she was twenty, 
and thus upon one subject at least freed lady selina's nights from care ah there is always something to keep me awake sighed the spencer spinster braemar's boys are too terrible how is he ever to pay their oxford debts passes my comprehension and now i am told they play baccarat at some dreadful club in london where young men who have no money lose twenty thousand pounds at a sitting and felix threatened his father that he would marry a girl he met at the stephanotis another dreadful club where they dance there was another year of respite for sir joseph during which he might be able to find a comfortable settlement in the matrimonial line for the humble companion so that she might not too keenly feel the difference in her position and that of sibyl as sovereign mistress of the house in arlington street and with all the e town eager to pay her homage i don't want her to feel the difference used sir joseph with a profound sigh as he paced the terrace in front of his tudor mansion it wouldn't be fair that she should it wouldn't be fair he sighed again deeply for as yet no eligible pretendant to the hand of mary arnold had appeared in that remote northern region and he began to fear that none might be found in the district the girl was a papist objection number one but an objection which had been disregarded by a needy evangelical curate who on ascertaining that sir joseph meant to give his dependent a handsome dowry amount not specified had urged his desire to make her his wife and possibly to snatch a brand from the burning by winning her over to the evangelical church the alliance would have been respectable as the young levite though needy was of a good northumberland family and of unpeachable morals but marie did not like the curate and would not hear of marrying him i shall never marry she told sir joseph i want to be sibyl's slave and companion always my dear girl that is all very well while sibyl is here replied sir joseph but when she goes to london and is swallowed up in the gaieties of the london season with hardly an hour of leisure for home life you can't be her companion then let me be her maid then and wait upon her and sit up for her at night and help her undress and hear all about her pleasures and gaieties no marie not a servant you must never be her servant you must never think of yourself as a servant i want to see you happily married before sibyl marries you are six years older than sibyl four-and-twenty you must have been in love half a dozen times i should think never said marie with an emphatic shrug i have even tried to fall in love with the curate not this one but the tall good-looking young man who was here before him and whose sympathies were all with my church with that young doctor du doctor du snap son 
and assistante but there is no such thing as love in my nature i think i adore sibyl and i love you and that is all the love i am capable of feeling ah we shall see marie trees that are long and flowering bear very fine blossoms the aloe for instance and the magnolia said sir joseph patting her shoulder as he trudged along by her side a sturdy active man although his seventieth birthday had been kept by the pitmen with beef and beer and noisy rural sports and dancing and fireworks nearly a year before he was very fond of marie arnold he liked to have her to sit with him and his daughter of an evening he liked to hear her sing her pretty french chanson full of coquetry and dainty love blue skies and sunlit valleys fountains orange trees eglantine and honeysuckle bees and butterflies songs that touched none of life's serious phases nor ever hinted at old age or death in this springtide of sir joseph's seventy-first year he happened to be at ellerslie for a short time with marie as his only companion and this companionship drew them nearer together than they had ever been before never until now had sir joseph been at ellerslie without his young daughter to hang upon his footsteps and ride and drive with him and play billiards with him or sing and play to him of an evening marie had been a secondary figure while sibyl was present but when april began sibyl was at hastings whither she had been dispatched suddenly at dr dewsnap's instigation to cure a cough which had hung upon her all the winter there were great things being done in the pits alterations and extensions which required sir joseph's supervision so he had been unable to go with his daughter who had been confined to the care of miss minchin fraulein stahlherz having gone back to her native hanover and for the first time in his widowhood he found himself pacing the long drawing-room at ellerslie or taking his morning constitutional on the terrace without that graceful figure near at hand she was to come home as soon as the cough was actually cured by warrant of the hastings doctor and in the meantime she wrote to her father daily telling him of all her walks and rides her excursions to the battle or to pevensey her readings of the norman conquest in thierry green and freeman and her longing to return to her father and ellerslie his life in that great house would have been very dreary for he had no visitors at this time and his secretary mr orlebar was not a very lively person if he had not found marie an attentive and vivacious companion pleased to do all that sibyl was accustomed to do for him mrs morrison shrugged her shoulders when she saw the foreign waif filling the absent daughter's place she liked marie but she disapproved of that young person's exaltation he told me not to give her any fine notions when she first came here 
mused the housekeeper, and now he is giving her fine notions himself. A young woman who spends all her evenings in the long drawing-room will never be contented to take a humble position in after-life. It was not more than three or four days after Sibyl left Ellerslie, when a stranger appeared upon the scene, a gentleman who called upon Sir Joseph one afternoon, and sent in his card, upon which appeared the name of Brandon Mountford, Travellers' Club. Any Mountford was secure of a welcome from Sir Joseph, who was never tired of showing kindness to his wife's kindred, but the name of Brandon touched him with a curious thrill, which was closely akin to pain. Brandon was the name of the distant cousin to whom Lucy Mountford had given the innocent love of her young heart. That Brandon Mountford had died in India two years after Lady Lucy's death, but she had left a son, and in all probability this was the son. These thoughts went swiftly through Sir Joseph's brain as he looked at the card, which had been brought to him in his study, the room in which he interviewed agents and tenants and transacted business of all kinds connected with his estate. Mr. Mountfort is in the drawing-room, I suppose, he said. I'll go to him. He found the stranger standing in front of a wide window, looking landwards over the valley and the river winding through it. A man of about eight and twenty, Sir Joseph thought tall, well set up, and with a fine, frank countenance, well-cut features, the Mountford nose which inclined to the aquiline, bright blue eyes, light brown hair, curling close to the well-shaped head, and a complexion tanned by a hotter sun than ever shone upon Cumbrian cliffs. "'I am very glad to see you at Ellerslie, Mr. Mountford,' said the old man cordially, holding out a broad hand in friendly welcome. "'Come to have a look at our north country, I suppose. "'You must come and put up here for a week or two, "'and let me show you a coal-pit, if you've never seen one.' "'You are too good, Sir Joseph, "'but I haven't come here with any intention of quartering myself upon you, "'though I have come to ask you a favour. "'Here's Braemar's letter to vouch for me.' as an insignificant but not disreputable member of the house of mountford i happened to hear from him of your splendid salmon river and was seized with a longing to cast a fly in the waters he praised so warmly brandon mountford here produced an unsealed letter over which sir joseph ran his eye carelessly you want to have a go at our salmon well my dear fellow fish away to your heart's content there are plenty of scaly gentlemen but they are deuced shy and you may be up at five o'clock every morning for a week 
and yet not early enough to catch them then after a few blank days perhaps you may get a run of luck i used to enjoy the sport myself thirty years ago when i was still young enough to wade breast high in the river in a scotch mist from seven in the morning to seven at night and relish my dinner and my whisky toddy all the better for the day's work where are you staying mr mountford at the higginson arms at ardliston hmm, a cosy old inn and a capital landlady but i think we can make you rather more comfortable at ellerslie you'd better go and fetch your portmanteau indeed sir joseph i had no idea protested mountford you will be nearer the salmon pursued his host and i can give you a keeper who knows every yard of the water you'll find this house uncommonly quiet for i am here on business and have invited no one since christmas my daughter is away and i have only a sort of adopted niece who cuts my newspapers for me and reads me to sleep after dinner a nice bright girl who sings charmingly sir joseph grew suddenly thoughtful what if this brandon mountford who had dropped from the clouds were the very man he wanted an honest man a husband for marie arnold he liked the look of the young man a gentleman to the tips of his fingers good blood showed itself in every line and a face and figure penniless no doubt the mountforts were all poor property in ireland for the most part family numerous chieftain weighted down by innumerable portions and allowances to daughters and younger sons bramer tells me you have travelled in africa said sir joseph glancing at the letter in his hand and that you have won some renown already as a hunter of big game my gun is my only road to fame sir joseph yes i have spent five years on the dark continent you must have gone there very young i sailed for the cape soon after my twenty-first birthday and within a year of my father's death africa has been my country from that time to this i am only in england as a visitor you mean to go back ah yes i mean to go home a strange fancy for a young man with all the world before him i know no grander world than the shores of zambezi no happier life than the freedom of the wilderness you can tell me your adventures over a glass of mouton to-night go and get your portmanteau you are too kind sir joseph but are you sure i shan't be in the way if you have come to the north on business you may find yourself bored by a visitor i never put myself in the way of being bored answered the old man bluntly you may be sure i shouldn't ask you if i didn't want you here then i shall be delighted to come said mountford i only regret that i shall not see my young cousin bramer was full of her praises she's a good little girl said sir joseph 
I don't think my life would be worth sixpence a day without her. And then his thoughts went back to the girl's mother, and to those far-away days when he sat by Lady Lucy's side in the Hartford Street drawing-room, and she told him of her little story of a misplaced love. Was this Brandon Mountford the son of that Brandon Mountford, he wondered, nervously anxious to be enlightened. "'Your father was in the army, I think,' he said tentatively. "'Yes, in the engineers. He died in India, as brave a soldier as ever fought there. And your mother, is she no longer living?' The young man's face flushed at the question, and a troubled look came into his eyes. My mother died many years ago, while I was at Wellington. She had been a great invalid ever since my birth, he answered with painful pauses in the final sentence. Sir Joseph felt that he had been cruel to push the question, but he had wanted to be sure of his facts, and now he was sure. This man was the son of that distant cousin to whom lucy's young heart had gone out and who doubtless had given her love for love the man so unhappily mated so faithful to that tragic bond if i can do him a good turn i will thought sir joseph he shan't go back to africa if i can hinder it he would make a capital husband for Marie. They would be a splendid couple. Brandon thought, brought his portmanteau and fishing tackle to Ellerslie in the course of the afternoon and dined alone with Sir Joseph in a snug tapestried parlour, which the millionaire preferred to the great dining-room with its lofty carved oak buffet and decoration of gold plate. The two men sat a long time over their wine, though Brandon did but just small justice to Sir Joseph's famous mouton. He was a tremendous smoker, however, and consumed nearly a dozen cigarettes while Sir Joseph entertained him with reminiscences of his juvenile struggles and the hazards and successes of his manhood. It was late when they went to the long drawing-room, and Brandon, who had forgotten his host's mention of an adopted niece, was startled at seeing a young woman, neatly dressed in black silk, with a bunch of tea-roses at her waistband, seated, reading, near a lamp-lit table. She had not dined with them, yet she had the air of being one of the family. Sir Joseph introduced Mr. Mountfort to this young lady, who was called Miss Arnold, yet who spoke with a French accent, and whose dark eyes and warm olive complexion were decidedly un-English. "'And now, Marie, you can sing us one of your little songs,' said Sir Joseph, settling himself in a luxurious chair, with evident resignation to an impending slumber. He was asleep before Marie had finished her first song, and Brandon 
and the young lady were practically alone, a fact which seemed less embarrassing to her than to the man not long returned from Mashonaland and from a society which bulk, beads, and blackness are the chief characteristics of female beauty. It was a new thing for Brandon to find himself in a solitude of two with a handsome young woman whose history, associations, and character were utterly unknown to him. She sang the inevitable Si tu savais with a good deal of feeling and in a rich contralto voice, and then De Morset Ninon, and then a little Provençal ballade, and then another at Brandon's urgent request. When he could not with decency ask her to sing any more, he entreated her to play something. Chopin, Talbert, Strauss, Sebastian Bach, Porpora, Lully, anything she chose. He would have kept her at the piano all the evening if he could, rather than face the ordeal of conversation with a strange young person. But she rose and shook her head at the question of playing. I am no pianist, she said. I have never played anything but my own accompaniment. Mrs. Higginson plays magnificently. I should never dare to attempt the piano where she is. I learned to play after I was grown up. What kind of music does Mrs. Higginson prefer? asked Brandon. Oh, all the great masters. Beethoven, Mozart, Mendelssohn, Chopin. And she extemporizes exquisitely. The piano to her is a living creature, her most intimate friend. She and her piano talk to each other for hours together. I can only sit in a corner with my needlework and wonder at her. She is far away from me in another world. Ah, uh, yes, my little girl has a genius for music, said Sir Joseph, awakened at once by the cessation of song. And Marie has a fine voice and a pretty taste, hasn't she, Mountford? Brandon said all that was proper and complimentary about Miss Arnold's singing, and felt infinitely relieved by the worthy baronet's return to consciousness and conversation. I hope I may have the pleasure of hearing Miss Higginson play before I leave Ellerslie, he said presently. Does she return soon? That depends on her doctor. She is not to leave Hastings without his permission. Ah, oh, you must miss her sadly. I would be lost without her if it weren't for Marie. She takes care of me. She's like a second daughter to me. By the way, Marie, Mr. Urquhart is coming in a day or two. Don't forget to tell Morrison to have his room ready. Marie's cheek and brow crimsoned, and the dark, strongly arched brows contracted in a frown. What brings 
mr urquhart here again so soon the same attraction that brings mr mountford my salmon river he will be company for you mountford added sir joseph to his guest urquhart's brother lord penrith is a neighbour of mine urquhart lost his wife only a year ago married badly a poor parson's daughter and he contrives to spend a good deal of his life at Colander castle it suits him uncommonly well you understand for he has my shooting and fishing as well as his brothers brandon watched marie arnold's face while sir joseph was talking and wondered at the angry and troubled look which clouded a countenance that had been gay and smiling a few minutes before there must be some strong reason for her dislike of mr urquhart he told himself and he became more interested in the girl's character and history from this moment end of chapter 5